Are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, dogs in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Your teacher is Dr. Anne Rogerson, who's the Charles Tesserero Senior Lecturer in Latin at the University of Sydney. Anne, good afternoon. Hello, Richard. We, we begin with Homer and the Odyssey, don't we? We do. This is perhaps one of the most um, well-known and, and really beautifully affecting stories about Odysseus's return home to Ithaca. Um, and when he first, so he's he's been in the Trojan War, and it takes him many many years to return home. He comes back, and he finds that his house has been invaded by all of these suitors who are trying to take his wife and his property away from him. And so he comes back in disguise to try and you know work out what's going on. Um, and the first thing he does is he goes to um, one of his faithful servants, a swineherd called Eumaeus, um, and rather than kind of a warm welcome, you might expect the, the initial thing that happens to him is that Eumaeus's dogs rush out um, on the attack and barking. And so what, what Odysseus does, because of course he's very clever, is he like sits down and drops his, his, um, the staff he's carrying so as not to look like a threat. And then Eumaeus comes out and kind of calls the dogs off and he's okay. Um, it's a kind of a little story, but it leads into a story about Odysseus's own dog when he finally gets to his own palace a couple of books later in the epic. Um, He's there with Eumaeus and he's talking to Eumaeus about how, how he's going to be kind of received. Um, and as, as he arrives, his dog Argus, um, who's sitting on a dung heap outside the palace door, sort of pricks up his ears because he recognises his master's voice. Um, and Odysseus sort of starts to cry. And it's it's a very beautiful mm. moment. Well, and and so to, as every, for for dog owners, it's uh, dog lovers. It's such a tragic scene because it, because of course he's in disguise. He can't acknowledge the dog, and so he has to walk past him with this, as, as Homer says, with this tear trickling down his cheek. He does, and then to make matters worse, the dog dies a few lines later. Mm, mm. Um, but it's it's a sort of so it's a pathetic story of um, of faithfulness, I guess, and long held faithfulness, even when you don't think yes. the master's ever going to return. See, I, I, and people disagree about this, I, I think, but I think the dog dies because he, even though he hasn't had the consolation of a pat or acknowledgement, he is so happy that his master is back, his job is done. I think that's what he's saying. Oh, look, it could well be. And Odysseus has been away for a lot longer than most dogs even even live. So there's something extraordinary about the way that this Argus just hangs on waiting. Mm-hmm. Now, it's so interesting, this story, isn't it, uh, in something that is so old? Because I think some of us think, oh, this whole... Uh, we, we know that, that dogs have a long history with, with human beings, guarding the camp, helping with hunting. But I think we imagine that this idea of them as being our companions, our very treasured companions, a symbol of loyalty as well. We we imagine somehow that this is a recent thing, but that story tells us that's not true. That's right, absolutely. And it... it, um it's accompanied by a lot of other evidence, not just sort of literary evidence from, from ancient Greece and Rome that say, says to us over and over again, these people loved their, their dogs and they cared for them. And they felt you know, really deeply about them. Um, and, I mean, Odysseus, when he's talking to Eumaeus about this, this, oh, what's this dog that I see kind of here pretending he doesn't know? Um, he talks about the different things that dogs can do. And there's hunting dogs and there are lap dogs um, that sort of sit on, you know, are fed from the table. Um, and it turns out that the, those sort of pet dogs um, in the ancient world were, like, they were everywhere. They're very, very common, and particularly one breed called the Maltese, um, probably some sort of terrier, a little white dog, like the Cavoodle of the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there are a number of um, funerary 
um, inscriptions, like gravestones to these dogs that, that have died and have been commemorated. And they're really touching. They say things like, oh, you know, this dog was a member of the family. Um, they were a beautiful soul. And some of the great poets, you know, Marshall, etc. Et they're they're writing a, they write about puppies and dogs, don't they? Yes, yes. So Marshall wrote an epigram, a, it's a short poem about a dog belonged to a friend of his, uh, which is called Issa, and it, it's very long for an epigram. It goes on about the tiny puppy and how beautiful and precious she is, and how she feels emotions like sadness and joy, just like humans. Um, quite a long section about how well horse tra- uh, house trained she is as well, um, but it's it's an indication of the really deep affection that that real life people in ancient Greece and Rome sort of felt for for their dogs. I love this funerary inscription to Helena, a member of the family, soul without comparison, and so well deserving. It's beautiful, and there's a lovely little carving of a Maltese terrier on on that inscription. <laughs> Despite this, you know, great love of dogs, there was a, a, an equally fierce debate, wasn't there, between the philosophers about how to regard them? There was. Um, looking at the kind of the evidence we've talked about talked about so far, you'd think, okay, well, there there was no question in the ancient world that dogs were were valued and should be well treated. Um, but you turn to the to the um, philosophers and find actually there's very fierce debate about dogs and and all animals really, um, particularly about how much they are like us as humans and then what that what implications that has for how they should be treated. Um, So, I mean, early on you have some philosophers like Pythagoras, for example, who believe in the transmigration of souls. So that's the transfer of the soul from one being to another when when you die. And a human soul can go into an animal. So therefore you've got to treat animals well because it might be, you know, the soul of your dead grandfather. but that's kind of, that's by no means the, the majority view among the ancient philosophers. Um, so you get people like Aristotle in the 4th century BC, who's hugely influential, saying animals cannot reason. And because they can't reason, they can't think rationally, um, then they've got nothing in common with us as humans, because what distinguishes humankind is the ability to reason. And then he takes it a step further and says, because there's no bond between us, um, there's no similarity, therefore we don't owe them any justice. We can do whatever we like to them. Um, And that proves, um, strangely, really, just sort of because of the way we know they did think about animals, but that proves a very, very... Um, influential view throughout a lot of ancient philosophy, particularly the Stoics loved it. There's a there's a, a, a view among some though that okay they might not have reason but they deserve they're useful to us and they deserve our kindness. Yes, so that's when you get Epicurus and his followers, the Epicureans, joining this debate. Um, they agree with the Stoics and Aristotle that that these animals can't reason, um, but they say well. But they're useful, particularly domesticated animals are useful because of the innate characteristics like dogs are good at hunting and so on. Um, and then they, they say, um, and because they're useful to us, we owe them something um, because we guard them. And there's a sort of implicit contract in, in our use of domestic animals. Um, so we owe them food and protection and comfort because they give us their service. Mm. Um, and and that, that idea then gets taken up a lot later by Plutarch, so we're now in the first century AD, of, of the idea that it is cruel and unjust to treat animals harshly, that you've got to do well by them. 
Yes, and when I was reading the ancient philosophers on the treatment of animals, Plutarch was the one I thought, well, I like this guy, you know, he could look after my pets. Um, because he said that, okay, animals may not be able to reason as perfectly as human beings do, um, but, uh, but that animals have a lot of good about them and also that we, it's, it's basically a manifestation of our own innate good to treat them well. Um, so if you're unjust to animals or you're cruel to them, then that's you not acting as well as you could do as a good human being. Yeah, uh, it's an indication of your values, I, I, I suppose. That portrait, though, of the, the, the love of animals that you get in, in, in Homer and then the, the thoughts a lot, a lot later, of course, by Plutarch, that's not reflected in the entire culture. For instance, if you look at the way that you've got the, 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 la- the, the there's a kind of prejudice towards dogs, both in the religious ceremonies and in the language used about dogs. Yes. Yes. So even um, a lot of the people who sort of argue for that dogs, for example, should be quite well treated um, because that's a reflection of, of your own goodness, um, saw no real problem with sacrificing animals to the gods and so both in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome we know of dog sacrifices, puppy sacrifices to Hecate in Athens, um, various times in Rome where they sacrifice dogs to, mostly to protect the wheat crop. Um, we know of bizarre punishments of people um, using dogs as part of the, the kind of method of punishment, particularly if you've killed a close relative in Republican Rome, you are thrown into the water in a sack in which a dog was one of the several animals you kind of tied up and sort of killed with you. Um, and and dogs, although dogs could be, you know, faithful and loyal and, and good at hunting and everything, dogs also had, a, I guess, a whole cluster of negative traits associated with them too. Um, particularly dogs associated with anger and uncontrolled anger. Um, and s- to the extent that uh, when you talk about the angry heart that, uh, or emotions that someone feels, then your heart is often said to bark with anger. Right? So that's sort of dogs associated with rage um, and with shameless behaviour too. Um, so, for instance, uh, a dog throw is the worst kind possible in, in dice games in the ancient world. That's right. So dog, dog in some ways can be like a byword for bad, basically. Um, and, and one particular brand of, of philosophers called the cynics actually take their name from the Greek word for dog. Um, and they're known for that. This is, this is the followers of Diogenes who was sort of sat naked in a barrel um, and so was kind of shameless in his actions or thought to be so. Um, <laughs> I must try sometimes sitting naked in the barrel and call myself a cynic. Uh, but nothing, nothing uh, strips away that, that story of Argos. It must be the most glorious story of uh, the dog in, in all of world literature, really. The, the idea of him on the, the, the muck heap uh, with, with, the, with the people who've taken over Ithaca not treating him properly. And, of course, to any dog lover, that is among their many crimes to, towards Odysseus, that they haven't looked after his dog. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's this, there's a story of Zeus um, uh, killing someone in ancient myth too who didn't look after his <laughs> dog properly. I think it's it's a small sub-theme, um, but you're certainly right. The Odysseus story is, is very, very touching. One of the most beautiful moments of his return to Ithaca, okay, I think. But, yeah, and, 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 yeah and, and don't let anyone tell you that this whole business of, of, of loving dogs and having them as our companions is, is a new thing because it ain't. Uh, and thank you so much. Thank you very much, Richard. There's uh, Dr. Anne Rogerson. 
Cheers, Charles Tesserero, Senior Lecturer in Latin at the University of Sydney. And you can, of course, listen back to her lesson online, abc.net.au slash self-improvement Wednesday. You can subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast wherever you get your podcast. Sign up for TGIF while you're at it, eh? Next week, a lesson from Jodie Rowley, Curator of Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Biology at the Australian Museum. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday next week. Music